Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's April 26, 2022. Our show today is The Knowledge of Power, Indiana University and the Graduate, excuse me, Indiana University and Graduate Worker Exploitation. Our opening song is The Ruling Class by Loose Fur. Here are the opening paragraphs of an article in The Guardian from March 30 of this year. Thousands of graduate student workers around the U.S. at private and public universities have gone on strike over the past few years. From Ivy League institutions like Harvard University and Columbia University to public state universities in California. Graduate workers at even more colleges have organized unions in spite of staunch opposition from their administrations. Among the most pressing unifying themes among graduate student workers organizing unions and holding protest actions and strikes is the low pay, an issue plaguing graduate student workers around the U.S. In the U.S., graduate workers take on jobs such as helping teach courses, assisting with research projects, and performing often vital clerical tasks that help run academic institutions. Included in this group are the members of the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition who voted to strike on April 13 and have recently reauthorized the strike with over 97% of those voting approving the action. In our first segment, we'll offer more context on this as it has been building for several years. And in our other two segments, we'll be taking a close look at the graduate dissertations of IU's new president, Pamela Witten, and Vice Provost for Faculty and Academic Affairs, Eliza Pavalko. This will provide us with perhaps some ironic framing of these leaders' positions on workers' rights. Joining me live in the WFHB studio are three PhD candidates at IU. Marina Meekham is in the History Department. Anne Kavalerchek is in the, in the Sociology Department. And Nathan Douglas is in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. And now, the knowledge of power on Interchange on WFHB. He was surface on the sidewalk on my block the other day. Yeah, it's a fact check. It's sorry, Charlie. Honey, he's back from the grave. Welcome, all of you, for and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Great. Uh, first, uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to say thank you for being, I think, the first people I've talked to in the studio live for many years <laughs> now. So thanks for joining us in the WFHB studio. Uh, first, let's confirm for everyone that graduate workers at Indiana University are on strike currently. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. And the strike action is at all the IU campuses or just at this flagship university? Just at Bloomington. The flagship campus in Bloomington. Okay. Um, can you tell me uh, also about the alignment with the United Electrical Workers and help us understand that affiliation in, in terms of what it means to, f to be affiliated with that, that union? Yeah, yeah, I think I can. Anne? Yeah, yeah. so I, I'm, I'm Anne. I'm in the uh, Sociology and Informatics Department. Um, so our affiliation with United Electrical Workers, United Electrical Workers is a really great union that um, has a rank-and-file system where they give a lot of autonomy to their locals. And so what that means is that as, um, you know, we, we, the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition is a movement that has been building for several years. And we are, we as the workers are the ones that have been developing our platform, developing our base, and our organizing. What United Electrical Workers has helped us with in the past year, or, or, or uh, about um, yeah, about a year at this point, is they've helped us. They've given us um, um, guidance in terms of strategy for how to form a union. They also 
also offer legal resources if it, you know, if it if it comes to that. Um, uh, and that primary, so primarily, they give us a lot of resources in, in the in their in the experience they have as a union that's been around for a very long time. It has dealt with a lot of things, but uh, as a local, we have a lot of autonomy in setting in setting our base and our platform. And now, how do you, how do you get involved with another union like that? I mean, how does it happen that you choose do you choose a particular union to be involved with, or what's the process for even deciding to align with a, a particular union? Yeah, so I would say, I mean, I think it's different for every every kind of local, um, for, for um, every union, on whether it's on a college camp, on a, a university campus or outside of it. But, um, but for us, it was, again, we had been building as an organization for multiple years. Um, and then after a certain point, it became clear to us um, as members that the, the for, to achieve what we wanted to achieve um, uh, in terms of our platform and inclusive and to the fees that was um, our, our primary uh, and that has still been it's a very much a driving principle but there were all these other things we wanted to achieve as well we want a living wage with cost of living adjustments we want fairness for international students we want um, we, we want uh, our benefits to be protected and expanded which are very much lacking in terms of um, child care and dependence for health insurance for example and so to do that we really we realized that we needed a union and so um, I uh, so United Electrical was an organization that some of our members had had experience with and had had a relationship with. And we sort of um, approached each other at the same time and kind of created a very collaborative relationship. Um, and it was a, it, it, t- it took some time to sort of really decide to go, th- to go, uh, um, to, to begin building a union in earnest. Um, I remember the membership vote we had where we all, where we voted uh, nearly unanimously to um, begin exploring the possibility of a union, and um, and it kind of developed from there. So uh, you mentioned the end to the fees. Do you want to explain that a little bit as well? Yeah. Um, do either of you? Yeah. I think we're still waiting Nathan. for the university to explain it a little bit, to be <laughs> honest. Um, True. Yeah. Uh, so basically when you're, I mean, the fees vary from department to department, school to school, academic to academic, academic unit to academic unit, sort of like everything else. Uh, But basically, you know, I can speak to my own experience uh, in the College of Arts and Sciences. When I was enrolled in coursework, which for me was about four years, uh, I was paying somewhere, you know, the number varied a little, about $1,100 a semester back to my employer. Uh, I think in a lot of places you would call that wage theft. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here, I think it's mostly just a smoke screen for an artificial tuition increase uh, because in in Indiana, the tuition increases for the state universities have to go through the state legislature. That only happens, I believe, every three years. So, you know, fees become a very convenient little black box. And to add to that... It's, um, Mar- the, it's Marina. Marina uh, to add to that, like, the fees are to cover what the university calls, like, technology, which are computers and classroom and things in laboratories that we use to conduct the work we do in instruction and research right. at the university. To pay, pay for the things that make your work possible. It's like bringing your own tools to work. This is not an uncommon thing that a lot of laborers or workers have done in any kind of factory situation. Mm-hmm. You're often asked to bring your own, buy your own tools, bring your own tools. In a sense, you're paying for your tools. Exactly. Okay, so that's an end of the fees. That was how things kind of started, right? Uh, yeah, and that was a while ago, right? When you got started to really organize for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was it was an issue that you know we as a coalition identified was felt widely and felt deeply across all campuses. So, you know, graduate workers in um, in biology may have very different concerns from graduate workers in in Spanish. They they might you know the, uh, graduate workers in the lab sciences often have concerns about the amount of time they spend in the lab and their you know uh, their uh, politics with their relationships with their advisors and. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, there are certain things that vary department to department, but fees is something that all of us experience as, as basically wage theft um, mm-hmm. as ba- and, and increasing wage theft as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe it would be, might be helpful to clarify also the just sort of how um, graduate workers are, are, are paid. I, th- I think there's a lot of confusion that the university sure. has really mm-hmm. fed into. But so um, uh, uh, primary, so PhD students and also often MA, uh, MA students or professional students, the, the people that we consider graduate workers are those who perform work for the university. So this work is usually instructional, often it's research, maybe it's administrative. But in exchange for that work, um, we, you know, we do get our tuition covered for to complete the classes that we are required to for our degrees. And we, are, we also put in a lot of hours of work. work that, um, these hours you almost always far exceed uh, for 40-hour work week, even though contractually it's 20 hours, but they, it far exceeds it. So we receive stipends for that work, and those stipends are very, very small. They do not keep up with the cost of living in Bloomington. Right. And then, but subtracted from that stipend, those stipends are these ma- these quote unquote mandatory fees that we have to pay back. Right. And to give you a, kind of a, the, the the listeners a scope of the scale of the problem, these stipends, if are the, I, th- I would say a pretty common um, annual stipend for a graduate worker here is eighteen thousand. There are some that only make sixteen thousand. Mandatory fees are between seven hundred to one thousand dollars per semester. Mm. That's fourteen hundred dollars to two thousand dollars per year. Mm. In the Jacobs School of Music, that's they actually pay an additional one thousand to two thousand dollars on top of that. So mm. this is just it's a huge it's a the scale of wage theft is, is yes. tremendous. As well as international student fees who Absolutely. You know, international students have to pay more. Yes. Not only that, their visas do not allow them to take on the outside work that the vast majority of us are already taking on. As a like a second or a third job even. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, um, okay, so that's that's good because I was going to uh, um, let me let me do this first. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is the Knowledge of Power, IU and Graduate Worker Exploitation. Our three guests today are all PhD candidates in various departments at Indiana University, and we're discussing the graduate worker strike, formation of a union, uh, the lack of recognition of that union by the university and IU leaders like President uh, Pamela Whitten. We'll get to uh, later as well. So uh, a question I, I guess I wanted to get into a little bit more. Of is just what is a graduate worker? It's one of the I think the problems you you're, you confront in the in the broader public is to say, well, what is your labor, and how do we understand your labor? You also mentioned your tuition being a part of your tuition then becomes a part of the stipend in the sense of how they assess your payment or assess what you're getting value out of this particular situation. Is that correct? Yeah, well, they, they really would like to say so, right? So, right, so, if they, right. so uh, kind of a common talking point that we actually heard um, begin with the former provost, um, two provosts ago, Provost Robel, was that we received uh, $51,000 mm-hmm. in value. Right, um, right. So that right. sounds pretty good, right? Yeah, right, um, right, right. But so Can't eat with that value, though. Right. You cannot <laughs> right. eat with tuition remission. Right. And, yeah. and furthermore, once you're done right. with coursework, you don't receive tuition remission because you're not you're not taking coursework anymore. Oh, gotcha. So, gotcha. so you know, theoretically, you're, the, the value you receive halves after about year three. Okay. <laughs> so right. um, it, it, it's, it's a, you know, the, the, the university, in, in order to complete our degrees, the university requires that we complete many courses and, 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 and do all these, all these things and also be registered for, as full-time students. Um, for, for that, we receive tuition remission for the courses that we take. It's, that's mm-hmm. just the, the way that you know, PhD, um, or, or that, that, that a PhD has always worked. Um, the 
but in ter- we, we cannot eat with that value. You cannot eat with the right. symbolic tuition remission that you mm-hmm. receive. That you, the only thing that you can use to pay rent and or to uh, pay for groceries, which graduate workers increasingly find themselves deciding between, is the mm-hmm. stipend you receive, which is subtracted mm-hmm. tremendously by the mandatory fees that you pay. Right, right. Um, in, in terms of the definition for a graduate worker, it's actually pretty cleanly defined in the in IU's own. Um, so we, our um, union defines it as people who hold what um, IU calls SAA student academic appointee appointments. Um, these titles are people who have who are researchers assistants or graduate assistants um, or associate instructors. Most of these roles are instructional. Um, some of them are also research-based or administrative. Okay, so um, in a sense, then, it's, it's, it is a hard thing, I think, for people to understand, and it makes sense, though, that you say this is, this is labor, mm-hmm. right? This is something you have to do or uh, to, uh, but this is a thing you do to pay your rent in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is your job, mm-hmm. right? And so, so help me with the, the number of graduate students who are not graduate workers. Like there's a large number of graduate students who aren't graduate workers, correct? Yes. Yeah, it's one of the things that interesting, again, an interesting talking point that I think um, spokesperson Carney likes to throw yes. out is that you're a minority right. of graduate students, yes. right? And the point you would make is that you're the majority of graduate workers. Yes. Yeah, and that the graduate students, uh, all the rest of them are not involved in this as a labor situation. Is that correct? Yeah, and so I think it's quite funny that whenever um, they mention call us a small group of students, they never say the number. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish they would, and then everyone could decide for themselves if you right. know 1,750 people right. who have petitioned the university formally for a union out of a bargaining unit of 2,500 is a small number. I wish they would say that over 1,000, it's about 1,100 graduate workers have pledged to go on strike so that the public could decide for themselves whether or not that's a small number. Right. So in terms of the total amount of graduate students at Indiana University, that number is about 10,000. Many of those are lost. Students. Uh, many of those are master students. Uh, these are students for the these these are student people for the most part who um, who are not. Uh, and many of them hold temp- temporary hourly roles, um, and they they are exploited in many different ways as well. But our bargaining unit is constitutes people who hold this title, which, who who we, who all sign very similar contracts to one another, mm-hmm. who perform, who have a lot of similarity in the work that they provide for the university, which is a very coherent definition for a bargaining unit of which we have a super majority of support for, mm-hmm. which you can also see in our overwhelming support for our three consecutive strike authorization votes. Right, three in a row then. You mm-hmm. just read, you just yes. had a new one, right? Yes. Just yes. A, and that was about 96%, 95.7% of the yes. voting block. Okay, okay. So, uh, and let me ask also, one of the things that I, I find interesting is these, is if these are, um, if there are graduate students who are, so these are graduate student workers. They're, are there not all the graduate student workers involved in this vote or... Is like, am, am I asking the right question? Yeah. No, I th- yeah. Um, so the the people, so the the vote to go on our vote to go on strike is an internal vote. So anyone who has signed a union card, we consider to be our membership, and those are all people who are eligible to vote. Gotcha. Okay. So there are obviously a number of people who are not who have not signed union cards and who are not voting in this situation, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to ask if there were if if you had a sense of dissension or antagonism for other particular parties. In the in the university, right? So obviously, I saw there was a neutrality pledge for faculty. I saw that the you know we can, we can talk about the kind of bullying effort of trying to encourage faculty to discourage the union effort, right? Um, but are there particular graduate students that that gravitate towards this particular action, and you know others that don't? You know, are there? graduate programs that are just like no way am i going to strike or that's not what we do or you know what do you know am i making sense there 
Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's a good question. I, I think for the most part, it's um, not so much. You know, union organizing is hard work. Right. All of us, yes. all three of us yes. have been working very, very hard. Right. And there's a lot of work that, co- that goes into union organizing. And some of it is sending emails and, and drafting things and, and getting the picket, you know, base camp supply table set up. But the hardest work and the most valuable work of union organizing is talking to your colleagues mm-hmm. and talking them through through their fears, through their concerns, through their needs, getting them to understand what could, how much their lives could change if they were paid $1,000 more a semester, $2,000 more a year, instead of paying that to their employer. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I don't really know any union that has ever achieved a 100% in it, in sure, right sure. to work state that has achieved um, 100% pro. And there's obviously dissension and there, there's people who feel, un- they're, I'm not going to say there aren't any graduate workers who, um, you know, who, 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 don't, who, uh, who don't disagree with this, but for the most part, I would say that the, the singular thing holding graduate workers back from signing union card or going on strike is, is sort of a culture of fear and overwork that mm-hmm. permeates academia. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is kind of um, uh, turned in a lot of, and that's sort of where it comes from. But for the most part, I mean, we've had overwhelming support. I, that's, that, the amount of cards that we've collected far exceeded anything that, um, maybe not that anyone expected, but it's it's been tremendous. That's great. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about the bullying I mentioned? Does anybody want to talk about? I mean, it seemed pretty clear to me that it was yeah. a pretty bullying move. Yes. So, <laughs> um, well, I mean, there's just Marina. there's been uh, so many things that have come up that it's kind of like hard to keep track, especially because mm-hmm. it's just rapid fire emails from um, the administration. Uh, a big thing is that the provost has repeatedly threatened to fire all of us, which is over a thousand graduate workers, mm-hmm. um, which is really s- scary and a big factor of bullying. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we have strength in numbers. It's very unlikely that the provost can fire or refuse to reappoint a thousand graduate workers because we teach the majority of classes at this institution. And you can't just bring in other people to teach Italian or to teach calculus or to teach physics or gender studies or whatever it may be. This is like Mm -hmm. highly specialized skills and highly specialized knowledge. Um, So that's kind of been the biggest point of bullying coming from the administration. Um, the administration's also asked undergraduates to write uh, rat out their instructors who are on strike. Mm. Um, thankfully, we've had the reverse happen, and most undergraduates write in support of us and not to rat us out. Um, yeah, but there's a lot of fear mongering from the institution and from the uh, administration mm-hmm. about our safety as workers and that threatens not only our employment and our ability to pay rent but also this tuition remission that allows us to continue to our studies and our degrees because when you're in a position where you're making fifteen thousand dollars a year if they decide to take away our tuition remission it's really hard to continue on as a graduate student and finish your degree Hmm. well let me ask uh before we go to break here what's the um now, I've only done recently a fairly, uh, um, what I would call a cursory review of the job market for PhDs. What's the drive to continue doing what you do? Now, I hate to say your education, because this is what uh, Pamela Whitten would say, right? Mm-hmm. This is workforce education that I think is what we're going to talk about soon also. Mm-hmm. But what's the drive to continue in a, in a space that really doesn't necessarily give you 
maybe the kind of next phase in your life you might want. I, I, I don't mean to say that, and I don't mean to be right. depressive about that, yeah. but there, it's a clear indication that there's not a lot of job opportunity for, for graduates in those fields, you know, to go into academics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can speak for me as someone who studies literature, and not only literature, but, you know, a, a rather regional literature. There's, you know, I came to Indiana because it's actually one of the only places where you can study Catalan, which is the language and literature that I mainly study in this entire country. Uh, so, you know, for me, the path was there, but it wasn't always clear that I was going to follow it. For me, as a scholar of literature and a scholar of culture, literature is about the power of abstraction. It's about the power of collectivity. It's about the power of recording uh, what you see and flipping it into projection for a better future. So, you know, just to, you know, kind of speak maybe in defense of the humanities here, you know, we can be business people. We can become a workforce training institution if that's really what Pamela Witten wants us to become. But we need the humanities because we're all going to be human. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to the university to, and get a job, you know, to study the humanities or for the humanities to be applicable. You can be a garbage collector. You can be a healthcare worker. You can be a business person. It doesn't mean you're not going to be a human. Right, right. Very good. Okay, uh, so let's take a break right now. Here's another song from the supergroup Loose Fur. This is Wanted out of the 2006 release Born Again in the USA. More on IU graduate workers organizing to secure a living wage, among other things, from their employer. Stay with us. When I say she's a rapist, that really isn't what I mean. It was all in my imagination so easily She's not so well-rounded She has points you don't see She does whatever she wants And I swear Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits, located at 922 South Morton Street. Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. Welcome back. 
Our show is The Knowledge of Power, IU Graduate Worker Exploitation. Our three guests today are all PhD candidates in various departments at Indiana University. We're discussing the graduate worker strike, the formation of a union, the lack of recognition of that union by the university, and the business ideology embedded in IU leaders like new university president Pamela Witten. Uh, our guests uh, today, um, Marina Meekum, Anne Kavalerchek, Nathan Douglas. That's the easy one. <laughs> so, um, so pronounced Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to I know how to pronounce that one. Uh, in this segment, we're going to turn our attention to IU President Pamela Witten's doctoral thesis conferred by the University of Kansas in 1996, titled "Transcending the Technology of Telemedicine." a case study of telemedicine in North Carolina, which kind of surprised me in 1996 is a long time ago. It seemed, it feels like to me, it was 26 years. Um, and now, you know, as I've been sort of, uh, you think about these kinds of, you know, um, medical situations with, you know, cameras in, in operating rooms that are operated by doctors in, in different states or different, you know, that kind of situation. So it seems like this may not be exactly like that, but it's, it seems fairly similar. So I'm kind of interested to find out <laughs> what she has to say about it. So Marina uh, Meekum, grad student in history, you're going to take the lead on this one. Um, so why did you think this 26-year-old thesis was worth taking a look at, and how does it sort of fit into our perspective here in, in, in your situation? Well, I mean, this is obviously coming from my training as an historian. I think it's really important to understand how people come to think different things, how their thought process changes over time. Um, so when we look at academics who then become administrators, I think it's important to trace kind of their journey of how they came in, like shifted from mm. doing academic work into administrative work and maybe like do their morals or values kind of shift and change along the way. So, um, as I mentioned, the title was Telemedicine, uh, and if you look at Pamela Witten's CV, it's entirely telemedicine in terms of publishing. Obviously, she's got lots of uh, bureaucratic positions in other institutions, universities, uh, Kennesaw, uh, Michigan, somewhere. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where. But so she's, she's focused in her own uh, corporate field or work field or research field on telemedicine seems exclusively I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true or not but um that seems fascinating to me like i don't, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if it is to anybody else yeah i mean it is really interesting it's interesting to me i my own work is on um healthcare in south africa so yeah. anytime something is healthcare related i'm like ooh that's interesting yeah. to me um but What's really interesting about Witten's dissertation is it sort of reads like a public health piece, mm. but her work, her research is not in public health. Her PhD is in communications, right. um, which was another interesting factor of this because Witten has remained entirely silent on the issue of graduate work, graduate labor, unionization, the strike. We have not heard a single word from President Witten this entire time. And so she's putting this work and this labor onto the provost and the vice president provosts. Um, so you'd think someone whose education and research and experience is in communication would want to communicate with graduate workers. So she's making other people do the dirty work? Is that what you're saying? By I mean, the other people are having to deal with the strike situation so she can stay clean of it? Or... I mean, that's obviously an opinion on my part. So. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what I take away from reading her dissertation. I don't know if either of you have different takes on that. 
I haven't heard anything else. Uh, if she would like to communicate something to the contrary, I think we would all welcome the chance to hear right. literally anything. Okay. <laughs> so in her vast career as um, a university administrator, nothing like this shows up in any of the work she'd done prior to this either. I don't know if there's been any of these situations that she's had to deal with at other institutions. I, I think actually it does there. I think she actually does have prior work um, in terms of um, quashing graduate worker unionization and you know contributing to the neoliberalization of mm. education. She, uh, I um, sort of mix up her previous two institutions, one Georgia State and Kennesaw. In Kennesaw, yeah, yeah but Atlanta-based. Um, but yeah. I think at um, either one or both of those, she, uh, you know, from what I read, is that her her actions as an administrator contributed to the de degradation of te the tenure system, which is mm. really critical for academic job security and right. academic jo and academic freedom as well. Um, and I believe she also performed a very similar um, uh, a similar role in quashing uh, worker unionization on those campuses. And what is also notable about that is. Um, the new provost who started in February of this year was very clearly hired to union bust. That is what he did at universities previous. And he is also the vice president who serves at Bloomington um, and works directly for President Witten. Mm, what was his name? Raul Shrivastav. Okay. And I believe yes. the two of them actually worked with one another at their previous two institutions as well. Yes. Is that right? Well, that's yes. also fascinating. Yes. Okay. I agree. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, so we, we see a hire that seems to have been directed to do specific tasks, yes. not just the provost, but also the president as well, coming in at the time she did. Yes. Yeah. And I believe he admitted that of his own oh, sort really? of volition in a meeting. I don't know if it was prompted or not, but... Uh, they are his words. <laughs> he did admit that. Well, uh, Marina, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, I mean, it, it's not a surprise to me that she's silent on, on these particular issues. It is interesting that these people usually are graduate. I mean, obviously she's a PhD, right? She's been a graduate student, and obviously things are different than they were in 1990, whenever she started this, her particular uh, program. So the world is a different place. And obviously, as, as Anne just mentioned, we're in uh, neoliberal university overdrive. Uh, having no tenure is the, is the greatest thing in the world for a neoliberal university. You don't have to, any guarantees. You can shop around for people. You can cut people loose whenever you feel like. Mm -hmm. You can have the kinds of people you want. You can have Anne Rand books in your, in your court. You know, you can have the foundation pay for everything and have right. those, et cetera, et cetera. All these things are negative. So what is it in this particular thesis that you discovered that was, was anything surprising about it? Or what, what is it that you felt would, would show you what she's going to do here, what she plans to do? Yeah, there's actually um, several big things in the way she talks about communication within organizational systems, uh, the way she talks about workers and um, how communication between leadership um, functions to workers doing the groundwork and uh, a few other points too. So I'll kind of just go through chronologically right, sure. here through mm -hmm. her dissertation. Um, the first thing that kind of comes up for me is the way she kind of frames her dissertation in the structure of communication. So Witten talks about the social construction of organizations and how they communicate, which is a little jargony. So what, what that essentially means is that organizations such as telehealth care systems, or in this case, a university, um, kind of define and create how they communicate with each other, how they communicate within those systems um, as the 
organization comes together and as it functions. But it also, according to Witten, is like organizations have the ability to, in her words, create and design communicational patterns, but they also, in her words, have the community. Uh, the ability and the duty to recreate and redesign their communicational patterns. Mm. Um, so what is interesting about this in this situation is uh, graduate workers at IU trying to unionize, which gives us the ability to bargain for our um, financial security, for better benefits, um, are trying to redefine and recreate the way we can communicate in the university system because the way we communicate within the system now is not useful. Like, it, it, it's broken. Mm -hmm. um, this is a point that's come from the provost um, who says he's meet, met with us 17 times to talk about issues and listened. Um, but we've been having these conversations. I've been having these conversations and involved with the union since 2018. Mm. Um so these are not new, um, and the provost is trying to say that this is true. Um, they're also communicating with us on their terms. Um, sure. They're having committees. They're having listening sessions um, that are not really listening sessions, but the provost is showing up and telling us what we need instead of listening to what we're asking for, which is union recognition. Right. Um, and along with that, it's not only this refusal to recreate or redefine communication patterns with graduate students, but actually the refusal to communicate with us in general. Um, because really what we're asking for here in, with union recognition is for the president and or the provost to sit down and have a conversation with us about a union, mm -hmm. um, which they have repeatedly refused. Right. Uh, this is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Knowledge of Power, IU and Graduate Worker Exploitation. Uh, currently, we're talking uh, with Marina Meekham about uh, Pamela Witten's uh, doctoral thesis uh, on telemedicine. I interestingly, like trying to understand what you're saying about uh, communication or shaping communication and having the institution itself, the organization, shape its responses. These, I don't think these are strange Ideas, obviously, this is how we socially construct ourselves, anyway. So, the idea would seem to me that you know she might be trying to apply these particular uh, ideas to to reshaping your communication, right? And that's uh, perhaps what the listening committees are supposed to do, or whatever you know, to sort of shape the space you're in. But uh, I, I guess um, what I'm what I'm after really is not like I don't think these things surprise me is there is there a way in which you thought that her having this particular uh, perspective on the thesis would show her in some sort of um, the show that she was not true to what she thought was a good way to be you know like she would say let's form a particular kind of institution let's learn to communicate together let's do these things in a way that we think is positive but when you're you know a named high, best ceo in atlanta for your work at kennesaw <laughs> which you know is just it's kind of ridiculous but i understood now that we're in a business university for the most part this is not this is not new with pamela Witten, right so you know, this seems like that's what she wants to do. Again, to me, this is telemedicine and IU and hospital and IUPUI. You know, everything is is geared in this direction in a lot of ways, right? So fighting against this is important, mm -hmm. but this seems to me what she's here for. So did you discover something in there that you thought, you know, this, this can turn around with her, or do you just expect her to be always driving against your particular path? I mean, I guess... 
I don't know that it's surprising um, because it's not uncommon to see uh, people who once held maybe progressive or liberal views change their opinions um, over time, especially if they end up in administrative or CEO sort of work. Money, yeah, exactly. Um, So. I actually have a little bit of her dissertation I can read a section yeah, of, but I'm going to frame it a little bit here first. Um, so a big chunk of her methods and talking about why she was doing this work on telehealth care and why it's important in her dissertation is uh, Witten at this time was really concerned about the well-being mm. of organizational members within um, healthcare and mm. within telehealth. She was really concerned about how the people delivering these healthcare systems, i.e. the nurses doing all of the groundwork, right. were affected and how they were operating within these organizational structures. Um, so there's a really significant mm. body of work in her dissertation and from her research that is devel- uh, devoted specifically to workers' well-being, um, which is significant thinking about our current strike in position where we're asking for a living wage so that we can have the health care we need and have roofs over our head and not be worrying about if we can afford groceries this month or, God forbid, we need an emergency root canal or something, you know? Um, So this is the line that stuck out to me the most of this whole dissertation. Um, So on the bottom of page 31 of her dissertation, uh, Witten says that if the healthcare provider is stressed from organizational impediments to providing telemedical care, she or he will suffer physically and or emotionally, thus impacting his or her ability to operate effectively in the organizational context. Because healthcare organizations are so dependent upon the orchestration of a multitude of providers with various skills, healthcare organizations cannot afford to fall apart because of weaknesses in organizational communication or through employees adversely affected by perceived characteristics of organizational context. Hmm. So essentially what she's saying here is that it's really important to take care of your workers, that they are okay, that they are healthy mentally and physically, that they are able to do their work. Um, There's also a bit in here that speaks to Witten's future in administration where she's concerned about healthcare organizations' reliance on um, workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it still, at the end, comes back to this concern for the workers themselves and being okay and then being able to operate and be communicated with effectively Mm. within an organization. What was happening in the organization that would stress them out with telemedicine was the idea that you weren't able to um, care for people um, in the because you had a lot of people to deal with versus you know seeing so many people physically uh, at one time then having to see maybe 10 times the number of people mm-hmm. telemedically or whatever through telehealth care you know and having to deal with the stress of the technology i think technology itself can be a stress in this situation as well having to deal with new technologies and not actually serving people but serving a technology a medium through which you you try to help people so what are, what were the stressors there Right. So essentially what shows up in her research on this is 
um, a lack of communication with the workers who were doing most of the actual labor. Gotcha. So what is happening in these early uh, telemedical settings, she's looking at rural health care and she's working at telehealth in prison systems oh. and kind of the shift from prison systems to rural health care. Mm. Um, so on the ground where the telehealth is being provided, um, it is nurses who are overworked, who are trying to learn new technology without a lot of support or help, um, who are seeing a lot of people all of the time. And these nurses are setting up appointments with doctors, maybe an oncologist in the city. Um, they are setting up not just doctors, but also the patients. They're doing essentially all of the administrative and in-person physical labor. They may need to like um, touch and describe certain medical conditions to the doctors on the telehealth system. Um, but what happens and what Witten highlights as a problem is the doctors in the city um, don't really see these nurses as doing all of this work or this labor. They check in for a quick phone call, give some advice, and get off the phone. Right. They're not really involved, but they think that they're doing all of the work and they're not communicating with the nurses on the ground, which leads to healthcare problems, or they're not, um, they get frustrated maybe when a call gets canceled and not realizing all of these um problems that the nurses on the ground are dealing with. Right. Um, and so Witten specifically targets this as a breakdown in a communication is adversely affecting and putting more stress right. on the workers who are not paid as much and who are doing way more than they should be doing. Right. Gotcha. Well, we're going to have to take another break right now and another song from Lucifer's 2006 release, Born Again in the USA, which I highly recommend to you. This is Thou Shalt Wilt. Stay with us for more on the IU Graduate Workers' Strike when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from the Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. Explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, and community events. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com.
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show tonight is The Knowledge of Power, IU and Graduate Worker Exploitation. Our three guests today, all PhD candidates in various departments at Indiana University, Marina Meekum, Ann Kavalerchik, and Nathan Douglas. We've been talking with uh, uh, Marina about IU President Pamela Witten's uh, doctoral thesis on telemedicine. And I didn't want to leave it uh, because it was quick, and I apologize, uh, time moves fast here, uh, without uh, Marina getting a, a, a last word on it. You know, how do you, how do you see the parallel here uh, in, in your situation in a graduate student labor versus nurse, nursing labor on the ground being stressed out or not being connected in a communicative way? Um, so I guess for me, the big takeaway in the shift in uh, President Witten's thinking from maybe a researcher, academic, graduate student writing a dissertation to now sort of a CEO position, head administrator at an institution that's like has a lot of financial interest and is interested in making money um, is that there's a shift between the her concerns with telehealth and workers on the ground having to do more labor because of um, this sort of new avenue, mm. a new new um, space that work is happening to sort of this concern where she's not worried about graduate students right. who are on the ground doing a lot of the work that allows the Indiana University to function right. um, because she's more concerned about the money than the well-being sure. of her workers. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, th thanks, Maria. Let's shift now into uh, Vice Provost Eli Eliza Pavalko. Um, she's the Vice Pro Provost for Faculty and Academic Affairs. And Nathan, uh, you're going to primarily be our guide here, right? I don't know, Anne, if you're chiming in on oh, this one. Yeah, yeah, Anne will yeah, chime yeah, in yeah. as well? Okay. Uh, so, uh, Anne and Nathan will chime in on Eliza Pavalko's thesis. Why, why Eliza Pavalko versus any other <laughs> Vice Provost or... I think I can start. Um, so, uh, Dr. Ravalco is a professor of sociology, and you know she's in my so she's in my department. Mm. She's primarily ser she primarily serves in an, an administrative role. Um, I have never worked with her personally, but I do have um, worked with and taken classes with people who have worked with her as um, as collaborators. Um, and it's always you know it's always just kind of interesting. And I think there's just sort of an inherent irony of a. A professor when a professor of sociology is engaged in union investing, which is very right. much what I and what I think every member of my union would characterize Dr. Pravalko's uh, emails to us since the beginning of since the before and the beginning of the strike. Um, I was I, I was familiar with her work um, in terms of the fact that you know my my the Indiana sociology department is very very strong in med in medical sociology. We have many scholars who do uh, really you know interesting important work on uh, particularly mental health and and uh, uh, women and uh, women in medicine and women experiencing medicine. Um, and so I think there's just an inherent, even before I was uh, as familiar as I am with her work now, having uh, read her dissertation, but I, there's just sort of an inherent irony in mm -hmm. knowing these few things about Dr. Bravalco and then also receiving these emails and mm -hmm. communications from her of, about um, how, you know, undergraduates were, are, uh, were or are being encouraged to surveil us, whether or not we're participating in the legal work stoppage that we are. Right. Um, so that's mm -hmm. where my interest came from, a mix of, um, you know, as a sociologist and also as a member of, of her own department. Hmm. They uh, so you've been getting emails as a like to a particular group, like you get group emails yes. from the provost, various yes. provosts, or just specific ones. Mostly, her. Uh, there's one in particular uh, that really sticks out. I believe the date was April sixth, which was before 
uh, we were officially on strike. It was a very, uh, you know, even keel email in which he laid out the procedures for firing 2,500 people and saying, <laughs> I don't have a problem doing it. Um, <laughs> so that's, so okay. that's sort of where, you know, I'm, I'm not a sociologist. Uh, uh, so that's sort of where my interest uh, from it came from. And then there was also a... Uh, there was a recent strike, I believe it was at Columbia, where there was a sort of similar situation, you know, where an administrator was intimidating all the graduate workers who were on strike. And one of them, you know, decided, okay, I'm going to go look up this administrator's dissertation and see what it was about. And it turned out that this particular administrator's dissertation was on labor organizing. And so, you know, after I got that email, the, the ball kind of started rolling okay. in my head. And lo and behold, you know, I can read the title yeah, if you want it, to. Do yeah, do it, yeah. So uh, Eliza Pavalko's 1987 dissertation is entitled Labor Process and Welfare State Formation in the United States, 1900 to 1930. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Gotcha. And then I read it on the picket line. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it was at Harvard, the um, where the oh, uh, president. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Wow. Well, that sets us into a, uh, a historical uh, time frame there, right? That, yes. That teaches us some things uh, in a, in and of itself. Like the title itself will will get you get you going there. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it's really interesting too. You know. Um, there's there's sort of a saying in organizing that often the best organizer is your boss, uh, and I find that to be really exemplary. You know, in this case, because as I was reading it, it, it actually laid out a lot of really interesting reasons for why a strike is important. You know, so right. when I get an email from her, you know, just a couple weeks ago saying that you're derelict in your teaching and research mission, you know, I kind of just want to attach the PDF and send it back to her. I think you should, or at least some, <laughs> she might some key paragraphs. She, she might block me from her mailbox. Oh, well, well. <laughs> well, what are what are some key takeaways then? Again, I'm going to stress that we don't have a lot of time. I'm sorry about that. Yes. So, so let's dive into what you think uh, the most important things are from the uh, from the her her thesis. Yeah. So you know, I think I'll sum, I'll summarize her thesis. So she's she's concerned um, with the the formation of the welfare state, and so when the sort of the key indicator of the welfare state that she uses is the um, creation of work of workmen's compensation. Right. in the U.S. And she also has another section where she compares uh, the creation of a national health care system in the U.S. or the lack of one versus in the United Kingdom where, right. the, where there was one. Um, and that, that's kind of the core area of it. Okay. And so I think in some ways, um, you know, that it's in some ways the the... The dissertation is litter is is littered with all these smoking guns, sort of of, of you know she 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 talks about the role of strikes in um, in in settling labor disputes. She she talks about the relationship between the workers and capital. She she and she she really you know she uses um, you know a lot of uh, Marxism and neo Marxism. She uses labor theory of value and politi political economy in her analysis. Um, so in some ways it, it is sort of you know it littered with these things that are very very ironic. Mm -hmm. But also I mean there there to be fair there isn't a part where she says strikes are good and people should go on strike. It is a scientific article right. at its core. Right. But I think overall what it shows is just this this problem that's very pervasive in, in just all of sociology. I'll, you know, I'll speak to my discipline. All of sociology is essentially concerned with inequality. That's one of our core areas of study. And I don't really see, uh, and I, as, as maybe some people might like to assume that you know, anyone that is a sociologist is going to, su to support um, a, 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 the, a historic unionization um, you know, effort on their campus. But the reality is it just, it just isn't the case. So um, you know, in, in, in some ways her... The dissertation is notable for all of, all of the reasons that Nathan has already discussed, but also it's um, just sort of kind of uh, unfortunately very typical of, of academics who study inequality, 
But also, it doesn't take an academic or a PhD or a bachelor's or anything to understand that inequality is bad or to understand right. that when workers suffer poor health consequences, they also do worse at work, which is not just something from Pamela Witten's dissertation, but also something a key factor in Dr. Pavalko's dissertation. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, that's I guess that's my, the, the, my, my brief summary and my, my thoughts on having a dissertation like this and being a sociologist and then also unfortunately not using your position of power to support the, you know, to support workers' unioniza unionization effort. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine her sitting in this chair, you know, 25 years ago or whatever and having the conversation you're having, right, and talking the way you're talking. And then, you know, this happens, this is, again, we, we, I hate to say we, we run into these things all the time, right, but this is a fact of being in an institution and, and being well-placed or, you know, beginning to be, quote-unquote, successful and making these decisions. You know, I don't know what happens institutionally, plus this is work product for a lot of people. They do the dissertation. Certainly. It's something you research and you put it out and you're done yeah. and you go get a job. Yeah. Right, and then you do whatever the job says to do, and you don't think, "Hey, I need to change the world anymore." I don't. I don't even need to think about changing the world. I need to change mine for the better. Yeah, and I mean, I, I yeah, I'm grateful that you all. You, it, it is work, right? It is. Right. It is a product of work. Um, I, you know, I think maybe she was sitting in this chair. Maybe she was, um, or would have been a, a, a part of her unionization effort, having written an article like this. Or maybe she wasn't. You right. know, I, again, all all of, all sociologists are concerned, right. essentially, study inequality. All people outside of sociology most for the most part agree that you know inequality is bad and poverty is bad and that you know these are these are just truisms that people agree with but you know what i find as as a member of this union um it's is just is it's it's not about what you study it's about what you do and right. for the most part it's very much about your material conditions so i I, I have no statement on whether or if dr balco would have what her um, role would be if she were not an administrator, if she were just a professor, maybe if she were just a professor, she would have signed the faculty neutrality pledge that over 500 faculty on this right. campus have signed. Right. Um, I have no idea if, if as a graduate student, she would have supported or did support um, unionization efforts that may have happened around her. Um, it, it just speaks to the fact that many academics, they study these things and unfortunately they don't feel, they aren't able to make the connection that all of us, not just academics, but all of us have, I believe, a true sort of moral um, uh, need as, as humans to, to support uh, you know, a, social, a social movement in per when it happens. Mm -hmm. sure. mm -hmm. Nathan, uh, I'm going to give you the last word. You've got about two minutes. So okay. if you want, you, <laughs> you want you, no, no, no. anything particular. Oh my gosh, this is scary. This is too much power. Uh, <laughs> no, there was, I mean, there was really just one thing I wanted to sort of add to both kind of uh, pin it back to what Marina was saying about President Winton's dissertation, which, by the way, was an amazing summary, amazingly <laughs> detailed. Um, but I really latched on, and, and it was the first, by the way, that I heard of this, you know, so I'm kind of doing this live. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I really latched on to what Marina was saying about, uh, or what Witten, I guess, was saying about recreating the necessity of recreating and redefining institutional communication patterns. Because there's a quote that actually really stood out to me in Dr. Pavalko's dissertation, and it's sort of her reasoning for uh, choosing the sort of first decades of the 20th century. She calls it a time for the reorganization of work. Mm. And, you know, if, if, if I think about a unionization effort now, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to reorganize our workplace. That is what labor organization is. And I think, you know, sociology, like history, like Spanish and Portuguese, we're all in the College of Arts and Sciences. And if I can be a little cheesy and quote the mission of the College of Arts and Sciences, it's to teach students to question critically, think logically, communicate clearly, 
act creatively and live, eth live ethically. That's all carved into a bench right outside of Owen Hall on campus by Dunn Woods. Then there's another part that I think they ran out of stone tablets for, but it's very easy to find <laughs> online. Uh, it says that all of these things are the foundation for living the examined life and for succeeding in an increasingly global and ever-changing workplace. I think the thing that has been such a barrier uh, for the administration is to recognize that the university is a workplace, and they already believe that. So, you know, what's the problem? Right, right. recognizing you as, right. as, as, as labor. I, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's hard. You're, I think we've had, a, we've had on this show before uh, Devarian Baldwin who wrote a book about um, you know, the problem of institutions that are just um, basically for-profit entities that you know, support corporate entities right. making profit and labor, free labor, cheap labor, right. finding, doing research, et yes. cetera. So I think this is the issue is not so much that they don't recognize that you're labor, but that you're free to cheap labor. Exactly. Right? Yeah. They right. call us an investment now. I right. think the, the language, I know we're running out of time, right. but you know, the, the, you know, I used to, the graduate students earn 51,000. That actually changed in, I think it was Dean Winbush's recent op-ed in the Herald Times. Um, he said that uh, IU invests $51,000 in every graduate student. You don't invest unless you are planning to make money. Sure, sure. And they make a lot. And they of make money. a lot yes. of money. Yes. They sure do. All right. Well, we're going to have to close it there. Uh, we're going to have one more song from Lucifer's Born Again in the USA, Stupid as the Sun. And I'm going to say thank you to our three graduate student workers joining us today, Marina Meekum and Kevalercheck and Nathan Douglas. We'll post lots of links in the web post for today's show so you can go to school on this topic. <laughs> also, there... Thank, thanks, Anna. <laughs> also, there are several uh, strike mic segments on WFHB's website so you can hear interviews and speeches there as well. I'm your host, Doug Storm. Kate Young is executive producer and also served as our studio engineer today. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Let me down.